Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Keith Kruger on the Intellectual History Channel, and today we're very fortunate to be joined by the author of an interesting and very readable new book that introduces some of the key moments, uh, movements, and people in the long history of uh, China's sense of its own exceptionalism. The book's title, Superpower Interrupted, The Chinese History of the World, is the latest book written by veteran East Asian correspondent Michael Schumann and published this month by Public Affairs Press. Michael Schumann, Michael, thanks for taking the time to talk with us about your new book. Uh, thanks so much for inviting me on. I really appreciate it. Thanks again, Michael. Um, hey, just as a place to start, uh, can you tell us a bit about your background and how you came to write this particular book? Uh, sure. I've, I've been a, a journalist uh, in Asia, actually, since 1996. Uh, I used to be a, a correspondent for the Wall Street Journal and then uh, for Time magazine. Uh, now I, I write uh, for The Atlantic. I'm a contributor to Bloomberg Opinion and, and some other things. And I've, I got involved in, in this book and this idea, you know, looking at what's going on between the U.S. and China right now, and uh, the rising kind of hostility between the U.S. and China. And realizing that I think a lot of this is based on uh, uh, a lack of understanding on, on both sides of the Pacific, actually, of, of one another. And I started thinking about, okay, well, why is that? And, and what's causing that? And how do we how do we start to learn more about each other? And I, it's, this started me thinking about history itself, where, you know, when you think about it, history is, is what you make of it, right? Uh, and we, we all, because of our backgrounds, because of who we are, because of what our education is and where we came from and what we watch on, on television as kids and that, what stories our parents tell us, that kind of thing. We all we all grow up with a certain view of history and the way uh, events in the world have happened and what what events are meaningful to us and what people are meaningful for us in our own lives and our own civilization. That's kind of a natural thing. And and then you you start to think about how well different people in different parts of the world had an, an entirely different education and come from different backgrounds and their parents told them different stories and. They watch different movies and and they have a different understanding of, of history. So and I thought that China, because of of China's role in the world, uh, what China has meant to the world, the way the Chinese kind of see themselves, that China has its own narrative of, of history. Uh, it goes back, obviously, a very long way. And I thought a lot of people, I think, in the U.S. don't really know this history. I mean, why, why would they really, right? I mean, and, and mm. I think if you know this history and you understand how the Chinese have perceived their own history and then from that perceive themselves today and their role in the world today, that that could help us, help us our understanding of China and help us understand maybe what, where China is going in the future and then where our relations with China could be going in the future. Hey, well, you you write in a style that that that's very approachable and and really, I mean, it's down to earth. It's it's quite refreshing. And um, 
I wanted to ask you, is, is this a conscious style choice on uh, of yours? Uh, for, for that matter, uh, w- would you describe yourself as a journalist with an interest in history or a historian who happens to be a journalist? Uh, I th- I'd say that I'm a journalist with an interest in history. I mean, I'm not a, I, I don't have a PhD in history. Um, so in that way, I'm not a professional historian, though I, this is now my third history book. So I, I'm not a total novice, I guess, either, but I'm, I'm, I've never gone through, you know, this, this serious academic work that a historian would. Um, so I tend to approach subjects like a journalist, and I think that's where the writing style comes from. I mean, uh, there's sure. a tremendous amount of, uh, of material written on China, of course, and some of it is quite well written and very approachable and meant for a general audience. And most of it is is really not. Most of it is really hard. You really need to be a specialist. You really, really, really want to have to know about the stuff if you're going to sit and work through this this material. And and obviously, you know, most regular readers who have an interest in China or, or an interest in history or nonfiction, you know, are not going to sit down with a at a Chinese studies library and you know read read over book after book after book. So. So part of the idea of this book was to take Chinese history and and to to make it more informal and to tell it like a story, uh, because it is a story, and sure. because this has to do with the Chinese perception of history and the Chinese version of history, it's very much a story. Uh, you know, it's 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 meant to be the Chinese story. So that's that's where the informal kind of uh, uh, tone and and style comes in. It was a very purposeful choice uh, as a way of, of imparting this information to uh, a readership where I think I think really wants to know more about China and uh, but but would want it in a kind of an approachable, uh, you know, easy, easy to understand, easy to follow kind of way. Yeah. And and I think it is. And and just, Thank I guess, you. in in a way to maybe add I don't know, a, another layer of context for, for everyone listening. You mentioned you, you've written um, other books, two other books in particular. Can you tell us about how or a little bit about them I mean, in terms of, hey, how did they inform Superpower Interrupted? That's interesting. My, my first book was actually a much more modern thing. It was uh, a history of Asia's big economic boom. And uh, it has a bit of, a, of an oral history feel to it because I, I, I met a lot of the key players uh, who were involved in policymaking in different countries, different times. So, for example, I, I did interviews with, with Lee Kuan Yew in, in Singapore. I met uh, Mahathir Mohammed in, in, in Malaysia for several hours and I, I got his stories. And that was kind of meant to bring the, the story of, like, of how Asia achieved the incredible surge of, of wealth uh, that it experienced in a very short period of time and, and what policies worked and what policies didn't work. The second book was uh, very different. Was, uh, the title is uh, Confucius and the World He Created. And, and that was an idea of, the, the idea was to, was to bring an, an incredibly important figure, Confucius, in world history and to tell the story of his his impact on history. It's it's not a philosopher. I'm not a philosopher. It's not a philosophy book. It's actually a history book about Confucius and his ideas and the the impact they had on China and and the world over time. 
I feel that both of those books actually helped with my with my current book because on the Confucius side, if you understand Confucius and Confucianism, you you will understand a tremendous amount about how China works. You know how governments work, how family families interact, uh, how uh, Chinese see their relations with other people. A, a lot of it is very steeped in Confucianism. My first book about the economic boom, uh, obviously it's incredibly critical to China's modern history that China has experienced such an economic boom. Uh, and that is also a part of the current book as well as, as China trying to restore itself as, as, a, as a great world power. So uh, I feel, I, I, to a certain extent, the, this current book is a, is a, is a bit of a outgrowth of some of this previous uh, research, both on books, but also my work as, as a journalist as well over, over the years. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. It kind of answers um, a question I had in, in, in my mind. We, we, you know, it was like, how do you how did you catch the the writing bug? Did it did it go with the territory? Meaning, journalism and writing has a need for historical context. Is that does that just kind of go with that? Well, I I actually uh, started academically with an interest in history before I had an interest in journalism. I studied history in college. I actually studied Asian history in college. I always enjoyed writing. My, my mom being kind of the typical, uh, typical Jewish mom was uh, uh, writing is not a career, it's a hobby. There are only two acceptable careers in my family. You could become a doctor or a lawyer. So uh, that, that's the kind of uh, mindset I grew up with. But the, the, writing, the writing bug was always there when I was, uh, when I was a kid and a teenager. And then um, later in college and actually into grad school, these two things merged together. My interest in Asia, my interest in history, and uh, my interest in writing all came together. And that's how I ended up as, as a foreign correspondent. Uh, and, uh, and that's also what, what drove me to write history books. I mean, I, my, my interest in history has never gone away. And, and I, for my own personal reading, for fun, I read history books. Uh, and every night I'll take a certain amount of time to read a history book on whatever I'm reading a book on the American Revolution right now. So on whatever, whatever the subject is. Uh, and so I've, I always had this, this interest, like one day I want to write my own, my own history books. And, and, uh, so I, I, I'm actually, to be honest with you, I'm amazed. This is my third book and I'm still somewhat stunned that I've been able to do this. Uh, it was kind of a lifelong dream to, to, to write history books like this. And I, I, I'm uh, amazed that I've had the opportunity to do it. Well, hey, I, 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 and I think it goes back to the style that you choose to, um, uh, you, you know, to put the story down. Anyways, um, Superpower Interrupted uh, is divided into 11 chapters. You've got that dynastic chronology there, um, a, a guide to the Chinese historical figures, and, and even some maps to to help readers uh, orient themselves. Um, and you, you bookend things uh, starting with that quote in the first chapter uh, and then and then use it again at the last line as the last line of your last chapter that um, that quote from the Chinese novel, The Romance of the Three Kingdoms. It, it's interesting. The best advice I ever got on writing books was from my very, very, very first book editor. And unfortunately, who never actually had a chance to edit my first book. She had a career change 
between uh, getting involved with my book and when I actually delivered the book, sadly. So she never actually edited the first book, but she gave me an amazing piece of advice, which is uh, you have to think of a, of a book like it's a whole, right? Like she said, journalists tend to screw up books sometimes because they think of it as individual chapters, like, oh, well, uh, writing each chapter is like writing one long magazine story. And she said, if you think about it like that, your book is not going to hold together as a book. The book actually has to have a beginning, middle, and an end, like a single magazine story or a newspaper story, a feature, right? It has to have a beginning, middle, and end that makes sense. So when I try to plan out, map out what I want my books to look like, I'm actually thinking of this, like, how do you, how do you carry the, what are the main themes of the book? What points are you trying to make? How do you, how, and then how do you create that arc? How do you, how do you make sure that all the chapters reinforce the themes and stay true mm -hmm. to the themes that you want to, uh, you want to focus on in, in your book? And this first editor actually made me do a chapter outline that wasn't just a chapter outline, but would detail how each chapter connected to the other chapters. You know, why, why I had the chapters in a certain order, what each chapter was contributing to my themes, what each chapter meant to the chapter before it and after it. And so she forced me to actually plan a book that way. So now after having yeah. gone through that, that exercise, now it's something I do. So when I was thinking about this book, I was automatically thinking of, you know, you have to start thinking at the very beginning when doing doing the, I mean, you don't know exactly what your book is going to say because you haven't done all the research at the very beginning, but you still have to have an idea. What am I trying to achieve? How do I want to achieve it? How do I, you know, what is this, what is the structure of this thing really going to look like? So I, I wanted the book to tie together everything from the beginning all the way to the end. Uh, so the ideas and the themes are actually clear to the reader and you don't have a lot of extraneous stuff that maybe is maybe is interesting, but a distraction. You know, when you're when you're a writer, and I think this is my journalism background, you kind of have to be ruthless with your own stuff. So there are some <laughs> things in this book that I found really interesting, but eventually I'm like, you know what? This is not critical to the theme. Uh, it's really interesting stuff, but it's got to go. So thousand words, bang, gone, just out of it, just just like that. So you kind of have to be ruthless to kind of stick. Stick to your ideas, stick to your theme, so you can create that that arc and that pattern that 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 you need to create. Well, I, I think um, I think it paid off in terms of uh, the cohesiveness, uh, you know, in uh, throughout those eleven chapters, uh, as you say. So I, I guess, and I'm not uh, trying to sidetrack us here uh, by mm. fixating on the quote, but I, I thought it was interesting, right? So the quote itself was, uh, "The empire, long divided." must unite, long united, must divide. So my question was then, or my follow-up, I guess, is hey, how did you come to choose that particular code? I, I understand the cohesiveness of uh, your thinking there, but, but does it tell us something more about historical cycles that are particular to a Chinese style or understanding of world history? What, what I think is most fascinating about Chinese history is how often uh, the Chinese have managed to rebuild Chinese power, 
you know, when we tend to think about China, when we learn about China in the West, we think of it as like a series of dynasties, right? And it it's often seems like one dynasty just replaces the other, that, you know, they're like tenants in the Forbidden City or something, and one of them loses the lease and a new one comes in. I mean, it's not, it's not like that at all, right? I mean, there were periods when there were the dynasties were broken up and China was in civil war or, or not united. You had uh, very ugly transition periods. You had conquest. So no, it, it wasn't really like that. But um, China wasn't always a political whole. But what is actually really remarkable is how often that when a dynasty collapsed or there was a foreign invasion or something awful happened, that the Chinese political elite were able to rebuild the Chinese empire again and again and again and again. I think that's key to understanding China, that the political elite in China have have for you know now more than 2,000 years seen a united China as critical to stability, critical to uh, uh, China being a great power, and have again and again managed to recreate this, this political stability and political over and over and over again. So I thought that that, that famous line from the Romance of the Three Kingdoms kind of very neatly summarized the pattern of Chinese history, which I think is, has some uniqueness to China. I mean, when you think about other empires, sure. Roman Empire, Greek Empire, Spanish Empire, whatever empire, Ottoman Empire, they're, they're not around anymore and not even really in, the same, in any kind of rough form. The Chinese empire, to a great degree, is still around. I mean, it's not a, technically, it's not a dynasty. But, uh, you know, you, can, you have a unified political entity in the place that is China uh, now in the same way that you did 2,000 years ago. So you have this interesting recurring pattern of history, which is very, I think, important to understanding where China is going in the future. In the first chapter, I guess, to kind of move us into that, uh, hey, you you write, hey, there's no such thing as as world history and and that his, the history of the world, hey, it comes in strands. And and I, I thought that's interesting. I, I think it works on on many levels. Can, can you set the context for for us in terms of what you mean? Uh, for w- with your larger message in chapter one. Well, I you know I think is you know gets back to something we were talking about earlier, where where you know history is what you make of it, and not all historical sure. events have the same meaning to everybody, right? So when you grow up in the in the U.S. and Europe, your you know narrative of world history usually starts with ancient Greece and goes you know to Rome and the Roman Empire and the rise of Christianity mm-hmm. and you know, Europe and the development of Europe. And then this is an offshoot of 1492 in Columbus and the, you know, America. And you do learn about other parts of the world, obviously, but it tends to be in the, in the context of that narrative of Western civilization and the rise of the West. But when you think about it, you know, events are tremendously important in Western civilization. You know, the murder of Julius Caesar or, uh, you know, the fall of the Roman Republic, what, you know, the, the, uh, the Reformation events that have fantastically important meaning for, for us in the West. Not that they're totally meaningless to someone sitting in China, but they're not quite as important in the Chinese narrative. And in the Chinese narrative of world history, they have an entirely different set of characters and events 
and uh, books and battles and whatever else mm. that mean a lot to them than vice versa. If you're sitting in, you know, Chicago, uh, you may not know very much <laughs> about, or they may not mean right. very much to you in your own in your own view of history. Uh, so that's what I meant that, that history comes in strands, and the strands aren't totally independent. They kind of bump into each other and tangle up every now and then. And of course, in more modern times with globalization, they become more entangled. I thought that was an interesting way of thinking about Chinese history versus Western history and, and, and how, they, how they differ and why and what it means. Yeah, no, and I think, and, and, you, and along with your style and then the cohesion that you bring to the chapters and even the paragraphs themselves, Hey, it's it's really readable, and you know this idea that um, hey, there's no such thing as world history. It just it's it really is a workable uh, motif or theme, and it's a nice way to start uh, start the book. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, but again, you know, this is a lot of this book is about you know perceptions of history. That's why, and and you know, we we see the world in a certain way because uh, of where we sit and who we are, and I think it's important. To understand that not everybody sees that history in the same way, uh, that the same world events can be perceived very differently uh, if you're on the other side of it. Uh, as that was the idea. So you 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 set that up nicely, uh, and then um, and then you move in. You've got your chapter three and four and five, where where you really go into to the history, and that's where um, hey, you lay out some, I, I think for the armchair reader, like you say, sitting in Chicago or wherever, hey, I think that uh, the, the, interesting the way you did it, it's accessible. I'm not sure. Is there anything in, in those chapters, three, four, or five, superpower created, superpower secured, or barbarians at the wall? Is there anything that you feel like you'd, you, that, that's worth unpacking that you'd want to highlight? I, I think a couple things. I mean, one, one reason why the book is structured as it is, uh, where, where actually most of the book is uh, before China's real confrontation with the West. And there is a reason for that, because China's confrontation with the West is a relatively recent phenomenon. But I think for a lot of readers in the West, it's primarily what they read about China. A lot of, I think, uh, readers in the U.S. and Europe, they tend to start their Chinese history, uh, you know, at the Opium War. With, you know, that was just a, that's just a couple hundred years. And when you have a long history like China does, a couple hundred years is just, you know, a short, a sh you know, a couple of short chapters. So. Sure. Most of the book is about what happened before and what China was, was like before and how and, and why China held such great influence, both politically, economically, technologically, and, and most importantly, as, as a civilization. Uh, and those, that's what those early chapters go into, is about China's relations with the world as China was forming into and, and becoming a great, a great power. And I think the other thing to mention about those those early chapters, but the book itself, you know, it's it's not meant to be a general history of China. There's other general yeah. histories of China. This is actually supposed to be focused uh, on China's role in the world and relations with the world and perception of the world. And uh, there's some general history in there, so you could follow why one dynasty fell and the other one rose, and so you could follow the narrative. But I. I tried to the greatest possible extent to kind of 
hyper-focus the narrative on very specific themes and ideas, how Chinese saw the outside world, uh, how China related to the outside world, uh, what China foreign relations were really like and, and why, uh, Chinese ideas about foreign policy and foreign affairs. So it's 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 the the narrative that is actually supposed to be somewhat somewhat focused on very specific things, uh, and that you'll also find developed in the early chapters. Do, do you think, uh, it's, speaking of those, those viewpoints, then um, one of the things that you talk about is is this viewpoint that uh, China has uh, w- with regard to being. Uh, either the center of things or not being the center of things, and it changed over time. That that, that I think you bring out well as as you go through uh, your narrative. Thanks. I mean, I think what uh, what's really interesting about ch- Chinese perception of of themselves and about and China is they they that of a very very early stage. I'm talking about really. I'm you know from some of the earliest writings we have from China, which which, you know, go back more than 2,500 years now. The Chinese were writing about, they saw their civilization as civilization. I mean, even early on, they didn't define it as quote-unquote Chinese civilization. That wasn't part of the identity. But it was, it was their culture and their civilization versus other, other cultures. And from, very early, from a very, very early stage, they would write about themselves as being a superior civilization. And that's an idea that carries through most of their history. And, and even when China was not politically or militarily strong, and very often the Chinese empire was not militarily strong, the Chinese kind of got beaten up by just about everybody at, at one stage. So there were long periods of time where China was not a great military power, but it was still a civilizational power. And its, its neighbors mm. tended to look at China as a guide. Uh, and as as uh, for influence and every, and they borrowed everything from legal codes to, of course, the Chinese script, uh, read Chinese books, Chinese philosophy, Chinese governing governing institutions. So when you, the Chinese civil this the Chinese civilization was really the source of Chinese power, and the Chinese knew that, and that's how they saw them saw themselves in relation to other people. That's a great civilization. And you bring that up about uh, with regard to Chinese script and books. And, um, you know, one thing that uh, had always struck me was uh, people uh, have have mentioned that the Han Dynasty was the the pinnacle uh, uh, in terms of talking about the dynasties. And And it wasn't until really reading your chapters, though, that, that it re- you really bring that home in a way that um, m- makes it really understandable. And now I, I, I definitely have a better feel for why the average guy on the street feels like, hey, the Han Dynasty, hey, that was, hey, that's when we really had it going on. <laughs> you know, it's, it's actually fascinating, I mean, how much of China, the Chinese political system Dates to the Han Dynasty, and actually, to be to be fair, to the preceding, you know, Qin Dynasty, which actually was the first unified Chinese Empire, and, and the Qin, even though they were only around fifteen years, uh, it was the Qin that really created the idea of a centrally run empire with a civil service and provinces, and th- you know, rather than something that was not really the feudal system, but much more decentralized. 
Uh, and of course, the Han picked that up after the after the Qin, and really ran with it because they created a lasting imperial system. Uh, you know, the the Han themselves were around for 400 years with a, an unfortunate little break in the middle between two halves. But uh, you know, and and but they created a lot of the the systems, the institutions, the ideology. Uh, some of it was built on earlier ideas. Some of it was was new. Uh, they created the, you know, a very uh, uh, deeply penetrated administration to, to run this massive empire. Uh, and it was a system that that stuck. I mean, the, the future dynasties sure. were not the same. Not all the dynasties were the same. Uh, but each dynasty did tend in a very basic form, tend to recreate the institutions that now basically date back 2000 years to the Han dynasty. Hey, and you mentioned uh, the, this period of disunion, which which was also uh, interesting, and 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 this idea about the um, how how the elite across the region um, really, I, I guess, getting back to the cohesiveness of your theme that hey, it's about the Chinese civilization, about the history, the philosophy, right? The same books being read. I mean, there, there were a couple periods in Chinese history early on. I mean, one was, of course, the Warring States period before the unification of, of China under the Qin Dynasty. Uh, and then you had this very long period of, of this union from the end of the Han Dynasty to, well, I guess formally the the start of the Sui Dynasty, but but that was a short-lived dynasty as well. So really between the Han and the Tang Dynasties, which is a very long period of uh, of three and a half centuries. Uh, you know, you you could you could very easily imagine a China that went the way of Europe. I mean, Europe has a very some common cultural roots, right? And in Rome and and common religious roots and things like that. And 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 yet it broke apart into all of these competing states and had their own languages and their own you know ideas. That could very easily have happened in China, but it didn't. And and part of it was because the the political elite in China shared common cultural values and ideas, and also a common ideology about what government was supposed to look like and, and what China should look like. And that made a unified China, these ideas that were formed early on in, in the Qin and the Han, and, and from a philosophical point standpoint, even date earlier than that, back earlier than that. And so you, that's what drove this, you know, you mentioned this idea that the empire must, must unite, must, you know, and, and must divide. It's part of the same cycle where the, the political elite continually wanted to recreate this idea of a unified, strong Chinese empire. Your background uh, writing about Confucius was really helpful in terms of understanding how Confucianism really held held it all together. So the co cohesiveness of your narrative, even when, when you think about it, that that, you know, the Chinese, the educated Chinese were reading the same books for, you know, a couple of, a couple of thousand years, really. Uh, not quite so long, almost that long. You know, it, it, all Chinese, all educated Chinese were reading what are known today as the Confucian classics. And uh, traditionally, they are, they are attributed in one way or another to Confucius. Either he wrote them or he edited them or something. Modern scholars think that for the most part, may not be the case, uh, but uh, they're still associated with his school of thought. So in order to be educated, you had to read these books. 
So you had an entire group of educated people in China who held to the same historical and philosophical precepts, and they had a similar view of history, and they were they were educated in the same kind kind of ideas. And this was very important as kind of a glue that held China together. And beyond that, also connected China to its neighbors, because as Chinese civilization and culture and language spread, other other societies started reading these books too. The Koreans and Vietnamese read them. And so this was part of the way that it was kind of what we call today soft power in political science terms. It was it was part of China's soft power that, that tied the rest of East Asia to China. When you think about East Asia, what is East Asia? East Asia, to a certain extent, is a Chinese cultural zone because of the influence that Chinese civilization had on the rest of the region. Not leaving the Confucian uh, Confucianism uh, point, because as you were talking, I, I was thinking, hey, is there... Is there something for us today with the, how China handled uh, the COVID nineteen situation? Once you know, once they things were out and um, they'd acknowledged its um, the, the situation as a whole, did Confucianism was that a helpful element to 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 how the country seemed to mobilize and self quarantine and. One one caveat on that, I, before I answer your question, you know, it, it's sure. it's not entirely clear, as you know, what the real situation was here in China. You know, a lot of people are not told on the numbers that the Chinese have released. Uh, and it, it's not totally clear that the Chinese really had, a, have, had or have a handle on how big the outbreak here really was. Uh, but to your point, yes, they did once they actually got themselves mobilized. They did do a very good job of kind of of, of keeping things un, uh, under control in the way that other societies uh, have struggled to do. It's interesting when you bring up Confucianism because you get into the issue of how important is Confucianism in modern Chinese society. And on on a certain mm. level, I, I think you know you're you're in China yourself, and I don't think most people know very much about Confucianism um, because. It hasn't really been taught here very much in a very long time. And, and you know, the, the Communist Party actually, you know, was de- denigrated Chinese traditional culture for most of its existence. That's no longer true. The party now is trying to promote and revive Chinese traditional uh, philosophy, literature, arts. Uh, but, you know, you have, a, you have a population that's not particularly well educated uh, in their own ancient civilization. Uh, at the same time, Confucianism was was so entrenched for such an incredibly long period of time that that I think a lot of people hold Confucian ideas and they don't even realize that they're Confucian. It's just it's just kind of like how life is, how the family works, how how ma, how uh, kids relate to their parents, you know, how uh, how how teachers uh, interact mm. with their students. It's 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 just part of life. So I, sure. I think one thing that you do see here, which is I think is an outgrowth of old, old Confucianism, uh, I think there's more of a respect for government in China than you would see in, in the U.S., where people tend to be very anti, I think, have a uh, distrust of government, which is very much, of course, a part of America's founding. That's not really the case traditionally in, in China, where you know government was the, the purview of the most educated. Uh, and and the most elite and 
it was perceived as being very prestigious. And I think some of that still holds uh, in China. Uh, people want to work for the government here. And uh, not everybody likes the government. That's that's a different issue. Uh, but that I think there is there's more there's a greater willingness to go along with government here. And that's not just because of the different nature of the government here than in the U.S. I think there's also something rooted in, in traditional society uh, that goes back to kind of Confucian ideas compared to the United States. So do, do you feel like the recycling or resurgence of Confucianism as largely a positive thing? Well, it depends on, on how you want to see it. I mean, it's it's uh, some people would say, why bring back Confucius? He was this old conservative fuddy-duddy and, you know, he, he didn't like women very much and has a bunch of old ideas. Uh, you know, on the other side of it is, if you really go back and read the Analects and read some tra- traditional Confucianism, the original ancient Confucianism, there's a lot of really positive stuff in there about the power of virtue, about how the proper way that people should interact with each other. You know, for most of Chinese history, you know, what was what was right and wrong was determined by Confucian ideas, right? That was the kind of the moral, the moral code. Um, so it's in that respect, uh, you know, it would, it, I think Chinese society can benefit from restoring some of these traditional ideas. But again, it also depends on how it was done. You know, you could, you could question why this government wants to introduce Confucian ideas again and what the purpose of it is. And of course, what selective form of Confucianism the government may want to uh, bring back in a way that, for example, uh, solidifies uh, respect for authority uh, and loyalty to the state, uh, which is kind of a, let's say, a selective interpretation of Confucianism. Maybe not something Confucius himself would have would have uh, propagated. So, so you, so moving us, kind of moving us along here um, in in terms of the um, the chapters, and and obviously we're not covering everything, but but the idea is, hey, you had, uh, but by the time you get through most of the serious older history, hey, you move on to chapter nine, superpower interrupted. There, I. Uh, Without really getting interrupted by that, uh, uh, I I wanted to kind of move us on to your chapters 10 and 11 because, hey, there's some stuff uh, that we can uh, talk about that that brings us back uh, more closely to the present. And I noticed in chapter 10, you had some uh, what I thought were uh, pretty iconic photographs, uh, Liang Chitao writing at a table, and you had those students um, in Beijing uh, on, on, on May 4th, 1990, 1919, I should say. Can, can you unpack some of the significance of, of, of these things in terms of the context of the chapter, which is, hey, right. making China great again? The idea of, of, that, of that chapter is getting at um, kind of the interruption of the title of the book uh, and what happened. And what was the interruption? Uh, because you know China, as I said, and, and we were we were discussing, had not always been a great power consistently year after year, right? You had this period of disunion. You had we didn't go into the some of the invasions like the Mongol invasion, which the Chinese Empire sure. was totally overrun. Uh, so you, you've had periods where China wasn't doing all that well. But what happened 
with the confrontation with the West was, was in some ways very different because not only did China suffer politically and economically, it also took a blow civilizationally. And that was different than, than in the past because let's say you know, when the Mongols invaded, uh, the Chinese could tell themselves, well, okay, well, we lost these battles, but we're still a superior civilization because look at those Mongols. They've had to uh, adapt to our civilization. They've had to take on aspects of being Chinese in order to rule and, and, and live here in China. Well, when the Chinese ran into the West, especially in the 19th century, they ran into a civilization that thought that they were superior and the Chinese were, were, background, were, were backward. And this was a very different thing for the Chinese to actually deal with. They, they, and, and what made it even more difficult for China was that the European powers could back up that claim because they obviously were militarily stronger. They had new forms of new, new technology the Chinese didn't have. They had new forms of economic organization that were giving them strength. So what happened in the late 19th century and into the early 20th century, when you talk about the May 4th movement, Lan Chi Chao, the great, the great political thinker, these, these people were trying to examine what had gone wrong with Chinese civilization. Why, why, uh, why is this other civilization around that seems to be stronger? And what can we learn from that civilization? And really, what they, by the time you get to the to the uh, May 4th movement, what Chinese reformers had concluded was that the problem for China was its traditional civilization, that the civilization was holding China back. And in order to be modern, in order to make China great again, all, these, all this old stuff had to be tossed and we had to, the Chinese had to import a whole bunch of new ideas from the West about government, about ethics, uh, about uh, economics, and that's how you ended up with communism, for instance. So this was a, a very serious break in the narrative of Chinese history, when, when the Chinese for the first time really decided that another civilization was possibly superior to their, to their own, and they were to a certain extent at war with their own history. Hey, you set this up nicely so that, hey, by the time you get through the, your, your references to the problems they had just prior uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the prior period. By the time you get to, to this chapter, uh, especially for uh, Superpower Restored, and, the, and then you've got uh, Deng Xiaoping and Jimmy Carter, and hey, some of us grew up during that period, and um, it's interesting uh, to, to, to see that picture. It's interesting when you look at what's going on now uh, in the 21st century uh, when China, you know, is a rising power again. And if you start, if you put into context what's happened in the last, you know, 30 to 40 years and you put it in, the, in this context of this longer Chinese history, you know, you start to seeing this pattern developing again that you were talking about, about, you know, this again uh, a, a China putting the pieces back together uh, and heading towards being a great power. And how much different is today uh, rising China? How much different is that rising China from an old imperial dynasty? I mean, technically, it's not a dynasty. There is no emperor. It's supposed to be a people's republic. Uh, but, you know, 
it is still a unified empire uh, with a, uh, a very you know highly centralized state that's here in China, and it's it's starting to interact with the outside world in similar ways to to what the old dynasties did. Uh, it's starting to bring back some of these, as we were talking about, these traditional philosophical ideas. Traditional, they want to you know promote. Uh, traditional philosophy and literature, not just in China, but around the world. That's why we have these Confucius Institutes and universities all over the world that is a government-backed program. They didn't choose the word Confucius, the name, by accident. Uh, mm. it's, it's a conscious right. attempt to promote Chinese civilization around the world again. Uh, so you can, you can fit what's going on today in this longer historical narrative of, of you know, 3,000 years of Chinese, Chinese history. And another uh, as another restoration of Chinese power, and it reminds me of uh, what the, the Germans have, I think have the Goethe in or the uh, the Goethe Institute and and I, and I and I suppose the British Council for that matter of with the UK here. Um, but you and you open that chapter with that quote I think which is interesting and I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, you've got Xi, uh, Xi Jinping's quote: uh, "Hey, China has stood up. It will never again tolerate." being bullied by any nation. And I was thinking to myself about that, that you're a seasoned, um, what's it, chronicler of China, so to speak. Um, well, can, can you add some perspective? What, how do you take that or what would you add to this in terms of your own thinking and your own use of that quote to open that chapter? Well, you know, it's a, it's a big part of the, of the Chinese political narrative here, as, as, as you know, when you, you see it, it's, mm. In state in state media all the time, you see it in speeches of Xi Jinping and other Chinese leaders all the time. This idea that China suffered through this age of humiliations, and that now that China's power is restored, that now it's time basically to set the world right. There's the reason I chose that quote is that to a certain extent, it feels in a very you know very very generally speaking. A sentiment that the Chinese have have held going back a very long time. Uh, when you think of the the Ming Dynasty kicking out the Mongols and and reestablishing uh, a native Chinese dynasty, a lot of a lot of their ideas and philosophy was it was very similar. Well, we we've, we've gone through this terrible period, and now it's time for for the Chinese to take take power take their power back and restore their power on the world stage. Remember, it was the Ming Dynasty that, that sent the great treasure fleece of Zheng Ho all the way around the Indian Ocean to, to proclaim the return of Chinese power. Uh, you see this kind of thing again and again, that whenever China was in a weakened position and, and had to submit to the, in some way to the wishes of other people, when they were able to rebuild their power, they wanted to set things right again. And that's kind of what you see Xi Jinping, at least in his in his his speeches and his ideas that 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 he says this is a, a this is an idea that is very much a part of China policy today, setting right what was wrong. Sure, and I, I think it fits well with again back back to your narrative as as you close things out with that chapter. I China has stood up. I mean, you could say China has stood up again. Uh, for that matter. Michael, uh, history and uh, political theory more generally uh, is also uh, about about the here and now. 
Hey, uh, and I think you you bring us uh, to the current moment with that with that for, uh, final chapter. What what I wanted to lead into with that was to ask you, hey, is there any people today, myself included, um, hey, like to read books on related themes? So if you were going to recommend a book to read along with yours that could say supplement a chapter or complement your thesis in some ways. Do, do you have any recommendations for, for the listeners? I'll confess that I have, I'm going to mention a book that I have not yet read. Uh, there you go. But it's, okay. <laughs> but it, <laughs> so I'm not necessarily, I'm not necessarily recommending it, but as, as uh, uh, since you're talking about uh, it, uh, kind of an extension of my theme, uh, sure. two, two former colleagues of mine from the Wall Street Journal are actually releasing a book about China also in June which is very much focused on on the news of the really current day of the U.S.-China relationship. And uh, I believe it's called uh, Superpower Showdown. And and I think it's interesting that the, we were doing these books, writing them at the same time, and actually they're releasing at the same time. Uh, <laughs> because that, to me, again, I haven't read it. I just know about it. it it's not available sure. yet, so I haven't read it. Uh, it's, still, it's still forthcoming. Uh, but it, I think it's interesting that they're trying to put uh, greater context and, and expand the understanding of how the U.S. and China got to where this state of tension where they are and what happened with the trade. Mainly it's focused on the trade war and what happened with the trade war. So to, it almost feels like that's like the next book. Uh, like uh, mine is the big historical context and and their book feels like it's, if you want to know what's happening really at the moment and get the right context on it, that that would be kind of the next thing to look at. And well, was there some thought or um, I mean, they've got superpower is the beginning of their title as well. <laughs> total coincidence. Uh, it's a total funny. coincidence, actually, uh, that we we were working on these things simultaneously and and uh, actually at the beginning had no idea. So there's nothing coordinated. They're different publishers. There's nothing coordinated about it. It's just it's just total happenstance. Sure, uh, as as those things happen. Well, once once again, Michael, thank you so much uh, for taking the time uh, to share uh, with all of us about yourself and and your perspective, uh, and of course, uh, your latest book, Superpower Interrupted: The Chinese History of the World, uh, just out from Public Affairs Press, June 2020. Thanks again, Michael. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it.